Welcome to a special episode of Leading Voices in Real Estate. We're veering from our normal interview schedule and today having a discussion recorded just prior to last week's National Multifamily Housing Council meeting with three leaders from the apartment business about both the current state of the market and also a deep dive into how to change the conversation and attitudes around the housing affordability crisis, particularly with respect to enabling, not blocking the development of new supply which the market so desperately needs. I'm joined in the conversation by three guests. First, Christine Espenshade from our sponsor, JLL. Christine has recently been named the lead of JLL's multifamily investment sales team for the Eastern region. Christine is based in Washington, D.C., where she leads the D.C. area market, but she will also work to bring the broader organization together and to take the lead on institutional clients. Second, we have Clyde Holland from Holland Partner Group, which is one of the country's most active vertically integrated apartment companies. Clyde is based in Vancouver, Washington. Third, we're joined by Mike Kinsella, the executive director of the Up for Growth National Coalition, a diverse coalition of organizations that have come together to address our nationwide housing shortage. Mike is also based in Washington, D.C. So to get started, we'll talk about the state of the apartment market. We're here in January in the 10th year of the current economic cycle, and in the lengthiest expansion we've seen, and one in which all the basic drivers have been positive for the multifamily business. First, Christine, from your catbird seat at JLL, how do you see the apartment business faring in 2019 and maybe 2020? I hate one-year projections, but maybe two years gives you some room to move and flex and help us think about the business. You bet. Well, I mean, as we know, uh, multifamily fundamentals ended 18 on a high note. Uh, I think we all went into 19 a little bit uncertain about interest rates and where the economy was going. But right now, JL has a focus of moderated growth in 2019. We expect next year to have peak deliveries. Um, and while supply side pressures will remain elevated, we think the long-term outlook going into 2019 and 2020 is very strong. The economy remains strong. Despite the government shutdown we're seeing in my market in Washington, D.C., we're seeing deliveries pick up, we're seeing rent growth, and we're seeing long-term stability. So our outlook for 19 and 20 is very positive. Mm -hmm. Do you see any short-term swans that are going to happen or could happen that could change that in the very short term? You know, short term, again, I think we're feeling very positive. Um, you know, we're watching construction costs, as I'm sure the others on the call are as well, to see if that moderates supply at all. We're really anxious to see how wage growth comes into play. We're seeing strong job growth across the country. We want those wages to catch up so we can start to see some really strong rent growth across the market. And, and Clyde, your turn. So what do you see in terms of overall market and your portfolio and then development? You know, Matt, having a conversation across the industry I think is really important as it relates to the health of the industry. So first, thank you for the opportunity to participate. So Matt, what we see is, yes, there's significant demand. Yes, there's significant job growth. And if you look at the job growth in January at over 300,000, that's continuing. The question of available labor pool and how many people we're going to have going forward is a challenge. Um, that we're going to need to resolve together, as are trained workers in the trades, and plumbers, pipe fitters, carpenters, etc. So it's an exciting time to be here. And our view is that working together, we can really work to uh, address the workforce housing issues and the housing issues, particularly in the West, 
in right. our second Christine's uh, summary that we're hopeful and we're we're anticipating that 2019 is going to be another year of solid growth. But by the end of by, by as we get into 20, all of the question of vacancy of projects that were built, kind of the rush of projects that came post GFC, that's going to be behind us. And then we'll be into long-term demand. And unless we see something really changed, we think that is it, it is long-term demand on a net demand basis. In other words, supply will not be able to keep up with demand. So that's how we see the world today. Absolutely. And we're going to come back to the conversation about the uh, workforce housing and the affordability crisis. But let's stick to the subject for a few minutes with Christine and Clyde about where the market and the fundamentals are in our businesses today. And and Clyde, just help us think a little bit about how your portfolio is performing, kind of subject one. And then also subject two is with the development that you're doing. And you said before you cut out in 2005 before the GFC because you were nervous about the ability to make money in new development. Are you seeing the same um, in this marketplace? So let me separate that into timeframes. Yep. If you want to take today's costs and build and recognize a profit in the merchant build format, uh-huh. based on where we are today, that's difficult. And we're at this inflection point in the cycle where you've seen supply ramp, rents have not kept up with the increases in costs. And so we're seeing a moderation of the development volumes. At the same time, job growth has accelerated. And if you're close to jobs, walkable to jobs or walkable to transit, we see a net undersupply and that undersupply really starting to be seen for what it is going into 19. Uh If your perspective is I'm invested for the next decade to two decades and I want to position a portfolio in the very best product in the very best markets, and at a quality level that will minimize my long-term capex, allowing the maximum amount of my revenue to fall to the bottom line, it's an exciting time to be in the market. We see, because of, let's say, developers that are have maybe taken an extra deal or two more than where their capacity is, the opportunity to pick up deals that are relatively ready to go and put them into the production queue while we have a bit of a pause and costs are lower than where they would be anticipated to be, say, in 18 to 24 months. We think that's an opportunity if you have a long-term perspective and want to hold that prop- those properties over time. Uh-huh. So it's a bit challenged on the merchant builder format, uh-huh. but I think from a long-term positioning standpoint, um, it's a real opportunity to really get portfolio and be built ahead of what will be a buying challenge. Once this market turns, the amount of capital that's going to try and get placed in the West will dramatically overwhelm the number of available deals. And so those that position early will have a position in the market. Those that don't will either pay a very significant premium to get invested or they simply won't be invested. Well said. Christine, from your perspective, kind of short-term buyers, long-term buyers, how's this affecting the investment sales business and next couple of years, but right now? 
Sure. I mean, Clyde's right on. I mean, there's so much capital out there pursuing multifamily deals. And, you know, his portfolio has always been very transit focused, very walkable and very high end, um, which, again, we're seeing a lot of demand for people pursuing those opportunities. You know, we are seeing, especially on the institutional investment side, given there has been so much capital raised for multifamily, and this even includes some cross-border investors, some of those folks are going down the quality scale of multifamily and going into value you add B quality or workforce housing because they are seeing a little more stability there given that you don't have new supply of B product. Um, people are really focused on good, good school districts, again, access to jobs, access to transit. But I think we are expecting kind of 2019 and beyond a tremendous amount of capital chasing multifamily. And we don't think that um, even interest rate risks or any other um, political risk at this point in time are going to impact that in a, in a significantly negative manner. Mm-hmm. And are, are there more investors, institutional investors, willing and open to a longer-term hold strategy than kind of hot money? Sure. I mean, I, you know, and again, uh, Clyde's very familiar with a lot of institutional investors. They sometimes come into an investment thinking it's a long-term hold and they may shift their strategy based on portfolio allocations. Uh-huh. But I do think that people, you know, private, institutional, regional, clearly the REITs have always had this longer-term perspective of, you know, you have quality housing, it will appreciate over time. Um, you know, as people are exiting other asset classes of office and retail because of TIs and improvements and leasing commissions that need to be paid, people are able to say, wow, you know, I'm getting a very steady return here in this multifamily investment. And maybe it's not a, you know, a a 10% every year, but it's incredibly safe and I can build well-located product. I can own this for two years, five years, or 20 years and still make a pretty substantial return. And is there more of those dollars interested right now or maybe workforce housing or B properties not to be value added, but to, for a longer term hold, that was not a popular investment and now it feels like it is? Oh, I think you're absolutely correct. I mean, you know, historically, uh, I guess really more in 2018, we saw some great rent growth nationally in B product. And a lot of that was because investors were improving the units, improving amenities. But now I think people are realizing single family and ownership costs have gone up. We're seeing the cost to buy a home with interest rates increasing. We're going to have people renting longer. And I think as an industry, and certainly we can speak with Mike about this too, um, it's going to be very important as an industry that we promote long-term apartment occupancy in lieu of just home ownership being you know, the be-all and end-all of the American dream. Well, I think that segues us well into the other topic of, of today's conversation. You know, it's been so interesting because there's been – different trends colliding here. And the first trend that's been just phenomenal is the back to the city movement and being close to transportation. And and I'm one of those people because I moved from the suburbs as an empty nester, not as a young person back to the city a couple years ago. But people want to live in urban areas. Second is that there is a crescendo of issues about affordability. And California had Proposition 10, would have, which would have opened the door to rent control. Luckily, it was defeated in large part both because it was bad policy, but in part because of a strong, concerted industry effort. But the truth of the problem is that with people moving back to the city, the supply is the issue, and cities and communities are trying to fight supply. So maybe Mike talk to us a little bit about Up for Growth and what the model is and what you're seeing out there. 
Absolutely, Matt. And again, thanks for the opportunity to contribute to the conversation today. Uh, just by way of background, uh, we formed Up for Growth earlier last year with the understanding that really in this conversation around growth and housing availability, there's really a missing voice in the conversation. You know, that we were lacking the diverse coalition needed to really to reach an audience uh, beyond just folks on this call, you know, folks in this industry uh, to come together and, and really advocate for a new approach to housing around the country. Uh, and so Up for Growth believes the communities really should grow for the benefit of every person. And we believe that one of the reasons we're not seeing equitable growth and rapidly growing and economically prosperous cities like San Francisco or DC or LA or New York is that you know, in part, we don't have enough housing uh, being built uh, for those folks that are coming into these markets, you know, finding jobs, and, and looking for a place to live. And so our mission is, is to really improve the quality of life for working families and to create communities that are accessible and affordable for all by specifically promoting policies that get at more housing close to jobs, transportation, and local amenities in areas of high opportunity. And so in short, Up for Growth is a diverse coalition formed to combat exclusionary zoning policies and frankly, you know, artificial and unnecessary barriers to housing development that have not only held back housing construction, uh, but they've prevented the country from achieving you know, the economic growth, environmental benefits, and quality of life uh, that, that, that it so deeply desires. So over the past year, you know, we've really put this mission into action uh, by building a diverse coalition, which now is in excess of 75 members nationwide and you know, aligning the resources in place to, to be effective in moving the needle on this conversation. Mm -hmm. hey, Mike, a couple questions. One is we've all heard about the NIMBYs forever and ever, but in the last couple of years, there have been a lot of headlines about local YIMBY, Yes in My Backyard movement. Is this kind of a national YIMBY that's kind of comment number one. And then comment number two is what's been interesting to me about the YIMBYs is that they're not really uh, tools. That's the wrong word to use. But they're not really sponsored by the development community. This is particularly young people saying, hey, I've had enough already. It's time for some growth. How do you achieve that in your coalition? Yeah, absolutely, Matt. That's, that's an excellent point. And I think does speak to the confluence of events that, that you mentioned earlier. You have a lack of housing production on a relative basis to job growth. And, and I think Christine you know, spoke very eloquently to, to that dynamic in the marketplace. You have millennials and the generation behind them that own homes about 10 percentage points below the rate that their parents did um, when they were at their age. Uh, and you have a growing constituency of stakeholders like the Yimbys, these, these younger folks that are facing significantly higher rental cost burdens and lack of, of opportunity to buy a, a first-time home, um, as well as uh, many other um, folks in the business community and chambers of commerce that are recognizing that the lack of housing is actually becoming an economic growth and workforce development issue. And so I think we're now at the point where folks outside of the real estate sector are starting to realize uh, what a challenge uh, America faces in terms of a lack of housing. Um, and so Up for Growth, I think, has come up as an organization uh, at a time uh, that many different uh, types of stakeholders are, are realizing what a severe 
uh, crisis we have on our hands. And, you know, we're a forum that, you know, has the opportunity to bring all these folks together. So uh, really, you know, the YMB dynamic that you mentioned uh, really speaks broadly uh, to the opportunity that we have before us to come together as a coalition and really move the needle on this on this shared housing challenge we all face. Fantastic. Hey, Clyde, you were one of the founders, I believe, of Upper Growth. Uh, talk about your support and where the ideas came from. You know, Matt, um, here's what I would say. When I go before a city council to pr- provide the opportunity to build new housing in an area that needs it, um, unfortunately, uh, I view the reception that I get um, somewhere between the devil and, and you know, <laughs> right. some other, uh, you know, name associated with that, that I'm somehow coming in and even though there's a housing crisis, my building new housing is considered a negative. And that conversation of where that label has come from has really the source of a big part of the issues we have. Mm-hmm. Cities have responded to housing not being affordable by introducing policies that made it more expensive. You know, in Seattle, we have a 10,700 square foot maximum floor plate in a tower. That, because they want to have nice, pretty, small towers, because that's what they saw in Vancouver, Canada. Mm-hmm. Well, in Canada, you only have to have one means of exit, one, one exit corridor down a tower. In the U.S., you have to have two. And so at the maximum, we can get to 78% efficiency, and that 10,700 square foot um, requirement compared to what we'd like to do, which is be about a 15,000 foot floor plate, means that I miss 100 units in every tower that I build in Seattle. That means that there's 100 more cars on the road and producing CO2. That means that there's 150 because it's about one, one and a half persons per household, individuals that are not, you know, shopping at the local retail that's at the bottom. So retail struggles. Congestion is an issue. And we have to charge about 10% more rent to get the same yield for capital on a small footprint tower than we would on a larger footprint tower. So what we have is cities in introducing rules and regulations that are making housing more expensive than the workforce can afford. And so we formed for growth because what I see is I have an ineffective voice and my voice as a developer is discounted because people believe, well, you're only saying that because you want to make more money. You're self-interested. It can't be that I actually want to put, put the right housing in the right place in the right quantities. So we can actually all have a dynamic environment that's healthy for everyone. And so Up for Growth has really um, been formed so that we can take facts and real studies and turn them into a conversation that's based on things and feedback that the housing advocates can give the feedback to the city saying, Look, if you make housing more expensive, guess what? You really make it more expensive. If you reduce the supply, you make it more expensive. What we need you to do is get rid of the things that are making the regulations that are making housing expensive and and open the supply in the right places. And about a third of our total cost in the West has nothing to do with bricks and sticks. It has nothing to do. It's just regulation. And that's part of the reason why in San Francisco right now, it costs more to get entitled unit, a land, just entitlement costs more in San Francisco than building the entire unit does 
in Texas. In Houston, you can get a fully built apartment for less than you can buy the land in San Francisco. That's a self-induced issue that, you know, the good news is we can change it. It, It's interesting. I I just wrote down the note, you know, uh, well-intentioned, but at the end of the day, too many well-intentioned ideas will just clobber you in terms of, of cost and overall picture. And you're right. It's hard for the developer of a specific project or even the development community to be the voice to deal with this. You have to change the conversation and it has to not appear self-interested. And I think Up for Growth and the Yimby movement and others can be our partners to make that happen. Matt, we, we fully agree. And included in the Up for Growth uh, members now are employers. Um, we have uh, t- tenant advocates. We have chambers of commerce. We have a, a very broad and dynamic group of individuals who are recognizing that the competitive nature of the community is affected based on the cost of housing at schools and the education of children. If you have to commute for two hours each way in order to gain a job in the San Francisco Bay Area, the breadwinner doesn't have an opportunity to spend time with their spouse and their kids. And that breaks down that opportunity. It's difficult. And so that voice of we need to put if, if we want to solve congestion issues and we want to p- make it least expensive or affordable living, we need to put housing close to jobs and housing close to transit. And we need to break those barriers down. I mean, we have one project in Los Angeles. It took over 10 years to get the entitlements. And, you know, that's not going to work long term. If we want to come together, our support for Up for Growth is really to give them the facts of here's what we can do, here's best cases, Here's what communities are doing that are really moving the needle Mm -hmm. and let the voices of the folks who have an interest in having a competitively priced workforce, employers, you know, cities and and chambers of commerce that they want to put forth solid growth, tenant advocates who want a volume of housing and who want to be able to provide for the workforce of a specific community to actually be able to live in their community. And those are the effective voices that we feel in partnership, getting the facts, doing the research, and then making that available in a way that everybody can build on the success that's happening in other areas. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Hey, Jason Issue, Proposition 10 in California was the rent control initiative. It was defeated by the voters of California in November. I bet it's going to come back unless there's proactive action by the industry. And those proactive steps may be painful for the industry to get ahead of the, of these kinds of issues. Any sense from any of us of how the industry takes that kind of a stance, um, not saying no to something, but saying yes to something that may be a bit of a bitter pill, but makes sense for the industry in the long term? Well, I think it's great news that the new governor of California, Gavin Newsom, you know, opened up his his administration by, you know, calling for a Marshall Plan for housing. Uh, I, I don't think that conversation was, you know, available uh, to elected officials five years ago. But the crisis has gotten worse, and it's just become so much more apparent um, that housing, you know, is a crisis point for for more families than not who rent in California. You know, Prop yep. Ten was a a great example of, you know, the initial uh, policy reaction from that standpoint. But I do think that, you know, going back to Clyde's comments, you know, 
part of the appeal and utility of Up for Growth in the statewide conversation is the diversity of our membership. And I, I like to joke that we don't agree on much, but one thing we all of our members agree on is that we need new housing, we need more housing, and, and we need policies to move the needle in that regard. And so that medium uh, of Up for Growth being the carrier of that message has proven effective uh, in changing that conversation in California, and I think does present a roadmap for those things to be for, uh, whether that's bills like SB 50, uh, which provide for increased density in high-opportunity transit-served areas, or the, the reconstitution of redevelopment uh, through, through Assemblymember uh, David Chu's uh, AB 11. Uh, you know, I think a pro-housing roadmap uh, and broad-based support uh, for that slate of policy interventions uh, on our housing crisis is really what we can all rally around uh, and, and, and truly move the needle on the affordability crisis and availability crisis for housing for for. Californians throughout the state. Mm-hmm. Clyde and Mike, you both mentioned kind of uh, business owner support, not real estate business owner, but corporate America support for this being an issue that's fundamental to their success at having a workforce and sustainability of their workforce. Last week, huge announcement that Microsoft is putting $500 million into housing production in the Seattle area. Clyde, you're from the Northwest. Any comments on that? I mean, absolutely. I mean, we are uh, front and center with Microsoft, and our pitch is, look, we want to invite you to become part of the conversation. Your money's important, but your voice is more important. And we want to take the $500 million that they want to put forward and put it forward in a way that's actually going to maximize the amount of housing that gets built and um, creates opportunities for Microsoft team members to actually have a better living experience, close to jobs, close to retail, walkable family transit, all of those different things from that standpoint. And so it's how we grow is as important as the fact that we do grow. And um, we did a national, Up for Growth commissioned a national study that determined we're 7.3 million units short since 2000 of meeting adequate demand. That's heavily uh, concentrated on the coasts particularly in California um, from that standpoint. And the conversations in those high opportunity areas that Mike's talked about and those areas around transit, we overlaid that study with an opportunity to look at the GIS mapping in the half mile ring around transit and have found that based on available land, we can put all three and a half million units in and around transit keeping and preserving the neighborhoods that the single family folks are so intent on, you know, protecting and provide the right housing at the right place. And what we're led, we are uh, advocating at the federal level is that the federal government get involved making available an increment of tax exempt bonds for housing that provides 20% affordable housing in those high opportunity zones. So you combine, you combine, state initiatives of allowing the housing in the half a mile ring uh, and a federal opportunity to combine tax exempt bond financing. And we really think that combination provides a roadmap for success that communities can follow and that we can look at really addressing the shortage of housing in a productive and economic way for everyone. 
What's interesting about that is it does require a different vision of development and what cities look and feel like and a different def- a different feeling about density that we certainly didn't have 20 years ago when we were doing most of our building out in green fields because you're describing the buildings being built closer to transit, closer to downtowns, and that's just a different vision of going up. Well, Matt, it's more than a vision. Uh, Chris Nelson's study on demographics uh, outlined that 87% of households formed between now and 2030 will be formed without children, and 53% will be single uh, occupants. And so the type of housing that we need, you mentioned the return to the city. Well, if you've got, you know, if it's the, you know, kind of typical American dream of, you know, single family home, mom, dad, and two or three kids, that calls for a product that's largely what was built over the last 50 years. When you look forward, when you're looking at <clears throat> two individuals, young or in the, you know, on, on either end of their working careers, but without children, the single family home in the neighborhood maybe not is the right product. They'd rather be in a condo or a, a large quality unit in an area that's walkable to entertainment, and restaurants, et cetera. And at the other end, the single individuals, they want to be as close to jobs and where it's happening as, as possible. And so we've created this, we have this incredible demand for product in and around transit, in and around uh, city centers and employment areas. And that's where the challenge has come because the demand is overwhelming, the supply for that product in those locations. And so with a part of up for growth and with respect to the vision, is providing the right product for the for today's workforce and for the demand because having a complete housing cycle so that at every stage of the housing um, conversation we have adequate supply that will produce the most affordable um, solution for housing over time and it's it's just got to be in relative balance you're always either going to be a little ahead or a little behind you're not going to get it right exactly all the time However, we've undersupplied it in these key job growth markets and getting policy, <clears throat> excuse me, to surround what's actually happening there is the key. Clyde's right. And, and if, Matt, if I could just, you know, sort of throw in one, one additional uh, comment here. Uh, you know, it's not all high rise or, you know, high density around transit. You know, one of our new members is the Chamber of Commerce of Columbus, Nebraska, which is a town of about 80,000 people, 80 miles west of Omaha, Nebraska. And the, the issue that they are experiencing with a lack of housing to support the jobs is the same issue that San Franciscans are experiencing these days. They aren't able to attract manufacturing employers that they once were able to because they're not able to bring in outside investment capital to build those housing units that are needed. So that community needs more tools in the toolbox uh, to enable the housing near the jobs that needs to support a thriving community. So that case is Mm -hmm. demonstrative of up for growth's broad-based view. We're not just focused on this housing crisis in urban America, but we're focused on the same issue in suburban, exurban, and rural America as well. And so, you know, it's both putting 
really a laser focus on breaking down exclusionary zoning and artificial barriers to housing in high-cost, high-barrier markets like San Francisco and enabling the type of product that you know, Clyde was describing, but at the same time, ensuring that we can support a healthy housing ecosystem, and that often means putting tools in the toolbox vis-a-vis tax increment financing or multifamily tax exemption or you name it, what are the economic development and housing finance tools that don't exist today that we need to exist to better align uh, uh, housing um, uh, responses um, to, a, to a shifting consumer preference that, that again, Clyde described. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely uh, a shift off of the status quo, uh, but what we're really talking about is how do we enable markets to respond to a real fundamental shift in consumer demand and housing need. Wonderful. Uh, let's bring this back to Christine for a minute before we wrap up. Christine, are we going to be able to provide fan financing and bring investors to all of these different housing options that we're talking about? Well, let's hope so. I mean, I think first and foremost, uh, again, being Washington-based, I'm going to nominate Clyde for president. Um, <laughs> I think he's got some, some great ideas really thinking about, you know, housing as a holistic approach to how we grow our economy. And, you know, it'd be nice if, if more people could think that way and maybe we could elect a few of them. Um, and again, along those lines, I think as long as, you know, we have the strength of Fannie and Freddie, um, you know, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, I think com- combined did, can't believe, remember how many billions of dollars in financing um, in the past year. Year. And again, they do a stabilized product. So things that are built, places where people are living. And I think, you know, you look at that as a taxpayer and say, gosh, is that the government's job? Really what we're doing is, you know, with the partnership of the, you know, the treasury and then the, the bonds ultimately being sold in the open markets, we are providing a great backstop to allow people to provide affordable housing. Um, and as long as those agencies remain in place, I think that's going to be, um, you know, something that will help sustain our business. And again, I think we have quality developers and municipalities that are partnering. We should have some great construction financing options as well. Um, and I think that should set us up for good long-term prospects. Wonderful. Hey, uh, Christine, great comment. Uh, Clyde for president, we're going to come back to that one. That one has a lot of load on it. So I'm going to be, we're going to be really careful on the subject, but. I want to thank you all, Christine. Thank you very much. Clyde, thank you very much. Mike, thank you very much. And we will keep the conversation going. Thanks, everybody. I hope that you've enjoyed today's episode, a conversation between leaders in the apartment business. We will continue to occasionally have these special editions, which move outside of the usual Leading Voices leadership interviews. I hope that you have found value in the conversation. And as always, welcome your input and feedback via our website at www.leadingvoicespodcast.com or email me at my day job at matt at This episode of Leading Voices in Real Estate has been brought to you by JLL. JLL is one of the nation's largest affordable and conventional multifamily and seniors housing lenders and investment sales organizations with comprehensive loan underwriting, asset management, and loan servicing capabilities. Are you interested in how to make your multifamily ambition a reality? Learn more at www.us.jll.com voices. Agency, GSE Lending, and Loan Servicing are performed by Jones Lang LaSalle Multifamily, LLC, a wholly owned, indirect subsidiary of Jones Lang LaSalle Incorporated.